Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. Welcome to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. My guest today is David Holmgren. Dave is a researcher and historian at the Iowa Historical Society in Des Moines, Iowa. He holds a bachelor degree in history from Drake University, bachelor of science in elementary education from Iowa State, master's in history from Iowa State, and a master's in educational administration from University of North Texas. Dave wrote numerous articles on Iowa history and a book called Abolitionists and Free Thinkers with the Underground Railroad in Clinton County, Iowa. Our discussion today is going to be on Iowa abolitionists. It is my pleasure to welcome him to the show today. Dave, welcome back. Well, thank you. Glad yeah. to be back. All right. Define what is abolitionist. If somebody considered themselves back then, they're abolitionist. Who are they? The definition keeps changing over time. At the time of the Civil War and the pre-Civil War period, periods where the Underground Railroad was very active, you didn't have to be an abolitionist to be called one. To a lot of people who were anti-abolitionist, if you even breathed a hint of a feeling that you didn't like slavery, you were immediately labeled as an abolitionist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an extremely emotionally charged term at that time. To some extent, it still is. So in the world we live in today... We've had to do a lot of thinking about how do we define the difference between abolitionists and people who are hostile to slavery but not abolitionists. The definition would come down in several ways. Some abolitionists refer to themselves as abolitionists. Well, that's a no-brainer, mm-hmm. you know. But particularly, listen to them do the talk and the walk. Mm-hmm. What are their activities? A lot of abolitionists wouldn't say, yes, I'm an abolitionist, but... You read diary entries, and we have a lot of diaries from the Civil War period in the holds of the state archives down at the historical building in Des Moines. It depends on the level of how strident are they in voicing their opposition to slavery. Oftentimes they would write letters to local newspapers, or they would be covered by either friendly or unfriendly newspapers. Mm. And so it's hard to define exactly what an abolitionist is. One way of looking at it, is an abolitionist is a person who not only dislikes slavery, but wants to abolish it. That's the root of the word abolitionism. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to abolish it gradually. They want to abolish it immediately. Yeah. By that definition, Abraham Lincoln was not an abolitionist until about the last year of his life. During most of his pre-presidential career, he was a free soiler. He mm. always said that, I, I don't like slavery. Slavery is inhumane. Uh, I'm giving a direct quote, but that's essentially the the message he was delivering. So what is an abolitionist? It's people who want to abolish the system completely. Would you say the abolitionist also believed in equality? Not necessarily. Keep in mind that racial viewpoints were so different Mm. back in the period of the colonial period and in the early republic. The whole culture that all Americans grew up in was acceptance of the belief that African-Americans were either a subspecies or if they were humans, they were definitely inferior to whites. Among the abolitionists, 
there was only a tiny percentage of them who actually believed in equality, complete, total equality for blacks. The issue at that time was not equality for black Americans, for African Americans. The issue was the issue of slavery. Is it right for us to tolerate this type of an institution in a country that says all men are created equal? And, of course, what, what I'm saying overall is that the overall American definition and definitions of equality, they have also evolved over several hundred years. Now, in Iowa, we had an abolitionist at that time. In our project, we've identified something like 13 or 1,400 people. Some of them uh, were underground railroad agents. Some of them were not. Some of them were abolitionists. Some of them were simply anti-slavery people. Mm. We also have a sprinkling of fugitive slaves and a sprinkling of anti-abolitionist uh, people like slave catchers yeah. uh, in the study. But one thing to keep in mind, I'll, I'll just take the year 1860. At that time, the federal census of 1860 showed that there were 600,000 people living in Iowa. 600,000. Of the 1,400 people in our database— I would say probably be no more, no more than a thousand. Absolutely, no more than a thousand were abolitionists, and probably a figure closer to five hundred. That doesn't mean that there were more, but think about five hundred people out of six hundred thousand. We're talking about one tenth of one percent of the population. And there were a lot of people in Iowa that were hostile to slavery, but they weren't abolitionists. Yeah. And then you had the run-of-the-mill Iowan, probably had mixed. Views, people who were, you know, they were concerned about turning the ground to start a new farm. They were concerned about raising enough food to stay alive. They were concerned about raising a log cabin just for some type of shelter. And they were focused on the mundane issues of life. That's true in today's world, too. Mm -hmm. I think there's a great amount of people in our general American population today who are somewhat indifferent to politics. They're indifferent to civil rights issues. They're not hostile. It's just that their lives are concerning themselves, their families. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they're evil people or unthinking people. They're just, they don't follow this. Abolitionists were actually a very small group, and it's because the culture of America at that time, the vast majority of Americans, not just Iowans, the vast majority of white Americans were not abolitionists. Mm -hmm. It's a tiny, tiny minority. And they were viewed as extremists, which in the context of the day was correct. They were extremists. Mm -hmm. Most of them did not advocate violence, but most of them believed in using arms for protection in case they were involved in the Underground Railroad. This is your favorite people that you want to talk about. Some of my favorite of people. <laughs> So who's the first one you got on your list? I'm not going to take this in any particular order, but I'm going to talk first about a man named Ira Blanchard. A lot of the people that I'm going to discuss, I'm discussing because they were colorful people. <laughs> and you can define colorful in a lot of different ways. But here's just, I'm not going to give anything in depth on these people. I'm going to talk a lot more about some people and less about others that's mm -hmm. on the list that I prepared. Okay. But let's, let's talk about Blanchard. We don't know much about his early years. One source indicated that as a young man, he may have committed a criminal act. We don't know what that was. Mm. Was it robbery? You know, was it some other violent offense? Was it a major misdemeanor? We don't know. But he eventually uh, gets an education and becomes a Baptist missionary. And he and his wife go to Kansas to educate uh, some of the Delaware Indians. He develops a great reputation as being an educator and as a kind man, you know, working with the Indians when, you know, the feeling against Native Americans 
was not real positive among Americans, particularly on the frontier areas mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, but in 1848, suddenly something um, surfaces in which he was accused of uh, carrying on sexual activity with a woman, not his wife. Oh. Yeah. And so he loses his reputation. Oddly enough, his wife chooses to remain loyal to him. They left Kansas, and they came up to southwest Iowa. He became very involved as an Underground Railroad agent. I mean, he established close ties and friendships with John Brown and with Jim Lane, another major abolitionist and he worked with a lot of other Underground Railroad agents in the area. He kept a station himself, very, very active. And because of this, it actually helped him recoup his lost reputation from, oh. from the sex scandal of uh, the earlier years. Imagine a person who's a missionary, gets into a sex scandal, but later redeems himself, at least in the eyes of anti-slavery people and abolitionists for his activity. He was an idealist in his own way, but he was extremely human mm-hmm. in many other ways. Yeah. Where's the Fremont County? What town, what town is that? Okay, think a map of Iowa. Look right down on the southwest corner, the very southwest corner of Iowa. That corner county is Fremont County. And Civil Bend was at the very west edge of the county. If you're familiar with the Luss Hills in western Iowa, uh, the Luss Hills, they actually go up and down kind of the, the spine of Iowa along the Missouri River. So he... He was located in Civil Bend, which was kind of located kind of from the floodplain and into the area of the Luss Hills. That's where Civil Bend was uh, first developed. Civil Bend was an area that had a lot of underground railroad agents. And a lot of them were also connected with John Todd, the minister over in Tabor, across in that extreme southwestern part of the state. Yeah, because it seems like they had a lot of conductors and station agents in that area. Right. Who's the next one you want to... Well, uh, I'm touch on. a lady named Elvira Gaston Platt. Okay. Uh, she was a significant figure because when you think in terms of the existing literature from that period and for several generations to follow, it was gender biased. Publications such as County Histories, Town Histories, you know, mentions in newspapers was about men and not mm-hmm. women. You had to be an outstanding personality to be mentioned in the records of the day. Yeah. Well, Elvira uh, Gaston Platt was one of them. She and her brother, George B. Gaston, uh, were very active in the underground aurora. She marries a man named Lester Ward Platt, so that's how the gets the name uh, Elvira Gaston Platt. She had regular meetings with people like Blanchard and with John Brown mm. and with other significant people in the underground railroad. She was a, a female who thought outside the box. You know, some historians have said that uh, in, the, in, the, in the mid-19th century, a woman was only mentioned twice in her life in the newspapers, when she got married and when she died. Wow. And that was it. Wow. Uh, yeah. That, and that might be uh, an exaggeration, but it's probably fairly close to the truth. Yeah. Women were not, not mentioned in, in existing records of the day. But she had the force of personality, and the inner direction in her mind and in her heart to be very active in this movement. And granted, she was with her husband, Lester, and her husband, George Gaston. But she actually participated in moving fugitive slaves. There was one instance, I don't remember the details, but she was in an open wagon with a a couple of fugitive slaves, and there was another conductor with her in the wagon. And they saw some people approaching, 
and they were very, very concerned. But Elvira didn't hide. She didn't go to the back of the wagon. She stayed up front. Turned out that when the people approached, they were friends. Mm. They didn't know that at first. Yeah. I mean, but that's pretty gutsy, isn't it? Yeah. For a woman living at that time to have, have the determination to go through no matter who these strangers were who mm-hmm. were approaching them. Next person I'm going to talk about a man named Isaac Brandt. Isaac Brandt was a leading merchant in Des Moines. Looks like he knew John Brown very well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Isaac Brandt was a, I don't know if he was a conductor, but he was definitely a station agent. He lived in a house at 1204 East Sycamore Street. Sycamore Street was the name of what is now Grand Avenue. Mm. So particularly with people who might be familiar with the Des Moines era, we're talking about very close to the state capitol building. So his house would have been north across the street from the state capitol and then just east of there a short distance. The building that's directly north is the old state historical building. That building is still standing, but it's being used for other state offices. But directly east of that building, we're talking about maybe 100 yards or so from the state capitol building itself, the house was right on Grand Avenue. There was at least one occasion, and perhaps several, where John Brown is bringing fugitive slaves through Iowa. It's known that he did stop at James Jordan's place out in West, uh, what's now West Des Moines. But on at least one occasion, he took the fugitive slaves right through the downtown of Des Moines and up the east side, what's now the East Village, and right past the Capitol building and went to Isaac Brandt's house. And at least on one or two occasions, he kept fugitive slaves in Brandt's house, at least for the night. And then in the morning, Brown would take the fugitives and go on. Isaac Brandt was also a community leader. He was very, very involved with the beginnings of the public schools, uh, particularly uh, in East Des Moines. Yeah, he was active in the founding of the Republican Party in Iowa in 1850. In 1862, he actually helped 13 slaves coming through Des Moines, including a man named Jeff Logan. And Jeff Logan is a, is a name kind of lost to history, but when Isaac Brandt died in 1909, Jeff Logan was one of those who delivered a eulogy for Brandt. Um, Brandt was very active during the Civil War. He uh, helped recruit soldiers. Uh, after the war, uh, he was appointed Assistant State Treasurer of Iowa. He was elected to the 15th General Assembly of Iowa. He served on the Des Moines City Council. He was chosen as Mayor Pro Tem at that time. In 1890, many years later, he was appointed Postmaster of Des Moines. This is the same man who was breaking federal law mm. before and during the Civil War. Wow. So you have a top community leader, one that most people look up to as, you know, here's a man who stands for law and order, but he was violating federal law and didn't seem to have much opposition in the Des Moines area, at least open yeah. vocal opposition. Wow. Okay, I'm going to talk about two gentlemen together who were in Iowa City. One was a man named Jesse Bowen, and the other one was uh, William Penn Clark. Uh, Jesse Bowen was a physician in the eight, late 1850s. He's elected to the Iowa State Legislature. Also, the last couple of years before the Civil War broke out, he was actually the adjutant general for the state of Iowa. That'd be equivalent uh, to uh, Iowa's commander of the National Guard. Okay. Here's a man who was also active with the Underground Railroad, violating federal law on a routine basis. The other man I'm going to talk about is William Penn Clark, and these two men worked together and with John Brown. Mm. Uh, William Penn Clark was a newspaper publisher. He was a very active abolitionist. He was one that at a very early uh, stage in Iowa's development was um, advocating blacks be given the right to vote. He was advocating that even before the Civil War. 
probably one of the main stories that brings the two of these men together was in 1859. This would be the last trip that John Brown made through Iowa with fugitive slaves prior to heading out to Virginia to start uh, insurrection at Harper's Ferry. Brown is bringing a group of fugitive slaves. We don't know how many. It seemed like it might have been a fairly significant number. He was bringing them into Iowa City area. Clark and Bowen were residents of Iowa City at that time, and they were active as underground railroad agents, but they also had established uh, relationships with John Brown already. As John Brown was coming into town, there were also some significant anti-abolitionist groups of people in Iowa City. Word got around that they were trying to put together a plot to try to kidnap Brown, try to catch him in Iowa City, and give him to federal authorities. The three of them actually met in Bowen's home in Iowa City, and they met in the middle of the night, and they decided, we need to get you out now. They didn't even wait till morning because they were afraid that the anti-abolitionist people uh, were going to find them and do something awful to them, whether they took the law in their own hands or turned them over to federal marshals. Uh, before they could get him out of town. They actually got Brown out of town that night and got him over to the Springdale and West Branch area, the, the Quaker settlements, yeah. just east of there in Cedar County, about 10 miles east of Iowa City. Nevertheless, uh, we got we got two men who were high up in state government. That's, uh, a, that's very, very fascinating. And, and very top community leaders in Iowa City, Yeah, actively involved in breaking federal laws. They just followed their conscience. Followed their consciences, yeah. Wow. Right. Who you got next? I have a very young uh, fellow named Christian Burkett. He lived uh, in uh, Jefferson County, uh, close to the city of Fairfield. And he is, and his parents were both active in the Underground Railroad in Whoa. that area. Hang on, hang on, hang on. 14 years old? 14 years old. 14 years, yeah. Wow. Uh, a lot of children that age would assist their parents. Like, uh, let's say you're harboring fugitive slaves. They're in your attic or in your cellar. Well, Junior, you know, go out and fetch some water out of the well or help Mother prepare the meals. But here was a 14-year-old boy who, granted, with his parents' uh, permission and encouragement, actually operated on his own. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Uh, He actually assisted fugitive slaves to get through the Fairfield area on his own. His parents probably knew he was doing this, but um, they weren't accompanying him. He was doing this that's, on his own as a 14-year-old boy. That's impressive. A 14-year-old yeah. abolitionist. Yeah. yeah. A local filmmaker uh, near Fairfield named Dick DeAngelis has produced some local films of local history in and around Fairfield in Jefferson County where they actually had a reenactment of Christian Burkett on horseback with a fugitive slave riding behind him on his horse. And somehow the fugitive slave fell fell, and he was in danger, the fugitive was able to get away. Hmm. This is a 14-year-old boy on horseback with a fugitive slave riding behind him on his horse. That's powerful. Uh, yeah, it's very powerful. Yeah. Wow. And, and the people in the Fairfield area who are aware of this, I think they would probably very strongly agree with your assessment on that. Wow. Yeah. Now, um, this is the beginning of his life. Wow. Uh, Christian Burkett went on to do some other significant things in his life. By 1889, when he was about 40 years old, he was, he was living in Des Moines. He worked in the state capitol building. He was a deputy to the Secretary of State of Iowa. Uh, he worked as a printer. He was also the chief clerk uh, of the insurance department. He was the state auditor. That's an elective position. So he held statewide elective office. He was also a deputy state insurance commissioner. He also sold insurance. And he lived in old age. He lived till 1927. So this man did significant things through his whole life, wow. starting with... The underground railroad when he was 14 years, years old. Yeah, age of 14. Impressive. Yeah. Now a really colorful figure. Uh-oh. Who you got? 
Reverend Party Butler. Okay. This man was never really a resident of Iowa, but we include him in the study because he spent considerable time as a preacher evangelizing across the state, but he was talking as much about abolitionism and the evils of slavery as he was talking about personal salvation for the soul. And he was a very, very provocative person, and he got into a lot of trouble. Mm. Not in Iowa, but he was heading to Kansas. He eventually settled in Atchison, and he was an open abolitionist, and he didn't care who knew it. He He got in one scrape. He went into a store to get some uh, newspapers. He was waited on by a guy in the store. He just starts talking about how awful slavery is. (laughs) And this other guy in the store named Kelly didn't like it. Kelly organized a meeting, basically for a mob. They got hold of Reverend Butler, and they... But they put him on just a small raft in the Missouri River. But they make this derogatory sign, and Mm -hmm. it shows a butler on horseback Mm -hmm. with what looks like a female fugitive slave riding behind him. And they had very derogatory comments about him and about the fugitive slave. And they put this sign on this raft, and they just sent him down the Missouri River. Just send a message. Yeah. But just a few miles down river, butler is able to get loose. He was able to bring the raft on shore. And he goes back on his uh, crusade against slavery. He ends up back in Atchison about a year later. Being who he was, he just starts talking about how awful slavery is. Necessary they, courage. They, yes, they organize another mob. Uh, this time they tarred and feathered him and ran him out of town. And then a year or two later, he's back in Atchison. <laughs> but here's a man that uh, is not going to take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. Here's a man who was such a strong idealist. The mom could have killed him on either occasion. Oh, yeah. He didn't oh, care. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, his views were so firm that he was going to take a stand. He was going to take it in a public place, and he didn't care who heard him or what they did to he him. He was willing to die for it. He was. Now, the next person I'm going to talk about, his name was Wells Spicer. He was the editor uh, of the Tipton Advertiser in Tipton, Iowa. Now, Tipton is in Cedar County, so we're talking about a county just to the east of Iowa City and somewhat to the north. And he was a very provocative abolitionist. I actually went through issues of the Cedar County Advertiser we have on microfilm at the State Historical Society when I was studying Spice. And I don't have any direct quotes. What I remember in general was his extreme opposition to the institution of slavery, his contempt for the whole thing having to do with slavery. Here are some other things that make him colorful. Uh, He didn't always make himself popular where he lived. Now, he stayed in, in, uh, in Tipton until well after the Civil War. But in 1869, he and his wife and uh, some friends move out to Utah. I get the general feeling that he had kind of worn his, out his welcome mm. uh, in Tipton uh, because of his outspoken views in the, in the newspaper. But he goes to Utah, and see, he was both a miner, M-I-N-E-R, like for mining, mm-hmm. okay, and he was also a lawyer. And Mm. so he specialized in mining legal cases. Mm. So he goes out to Utah. After he'd been there for a few years, he gets involved in a really nasty court case. Uh, It was called the Meadow Mountains Massacre case. A man named John D. Lee was uh, arrested and accused of murdering a whole group of people traveling through the state of Utah. And he was put on trial. He contacts Spicer. Spicer agrees to defend him. So Spicer goes into court. He does what probably most lawyers would do, try to throw suspicion on everything and everybody else to get off my client. Well, in the process, he offends just about everybody who's living in Utah. 
because he's throwing suspicion on other Mormons who could have very well been involved in this conspiracy. So he offends the Mormons. He also talks about a lot of low-grade people who just generally live in Utah. Well, that offends other residents living in. And then he tries to throw suspicion on some of the local Indian tribes, so it offends them. After that, Spicer was so unpopular through the whole Utah territory, he decides to leave. So right at the beginning of the year 1880, he starts traveling south through the Arizona territory, and he comes to a little town called Tombstone. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's a lawyer, and he's a Republican, and uh, Tombstone was a very political town. All the stories we hear about Tombstone, it's like the Wild West, but there are deep political divides between Republicans and Democrats in Tombstone. Well, Spicer, from his uh, anti-slavery days, was obviously a Republican, and he was an outspoken Republican, and he was made a Justice of the Peace shortly after he arrived. What is a Justice of the Peace? A Justice of the Peace, it kind of depends on the point in time you're talking about and the state and region. Justice of the peace do not necessarily have to be lawyers, but they can like sign or witness legal papers, things like that. Okay. Uh, they can, in today's world, I know, uh, if you get a traffic ticket, uh, you might be able to go to a justice of peace to uh, pay your fine, things like that. Mm, okay. Justice of the peace I know in Iowa, back at the time Spicer was alive, they could uh, perform marriages. They were generally considered to be leaders in the community that could solve minor legal issues. Mm. But he was a lawyer who was also appointed as a justice of the peace. That was early in 1880. Well, in October of 1881, uh, there was a commotion in Tombstone, Arizona, that most (laughs) Americans are familiar with. We call it the shootout, the OK Corral. The day after the shootout, Ike Clanton files charges against Wyatt Earp and his brothers Virgil and Morgan and against Doc Holliday. And so it has to go into the court. Well, guess who is the judge presiding? Mm. Wells Spicer. And, of course, because of his Republican sympathies, he had a certain section of the town supporting him and supporting the Earps, and you had the other people in the town, who were largely Democrats, supporting the Clantons. Spicer obviously ruled against the Clantons. Here are some things that Spicer did during the trial. First of all, okay, he allowed Wyatt Earp to testify by just reading a prepared statement, but without being cross-examined. And he allowed this. Wow. Yeah. A second decision... He personally interviewed a witness at her home, and she presented very confusing testimony. Spicer allowed the testimony to stand, and he made his decision uh, to acquit all of the Earps. That really created some really bad feeling in the community of Tombstone. We don't know exactly what happened. What we do know is that a couple years later, he decides, well, maybe it's time for me to leave Tombstone. Apparently his intent was to go further south. Well, you don't go very far south from Tombstone, and you're in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And uh, he disappeared. To this day, we don't know what happened. Okay. Hmm. Who else do you want to I'm going to talk about a a Quaker underground railroad agent. He was a conductor. He was a Quaker in uh, the Springdale, West Branch area. Uh, Was that a huge Quaker community in Springdale? uh, Springdale and West Branch at that time were primarily Quaker. There was one significant Underground Railroad agent named William Maxson, who was a major player who was not a Quaker, mm. but largely we're talking about Quaker communities, at least at that time. Okay. Now, Murray Tatum was already a middle-aged man by the time the Civil War came by, uh, so he was, he was getting somewhat advanced in life. But being a good Quaker, 
he had a lot of conflicts in his mind about the institution of slavery in American life. And like most Quakers at the time, they were either abolitionists or well on their way to becoming abolitionists. In fact, Quakers were among the leading groups in Iowa, along with some other groups, mm. that were active in the Underground Railroad in Iowa during those years. Mm. However, on one occasion, he had a load of uh, fugitive slaves in a wagon, put some other items of cargo in the wagon to conceal them. Mm. Okay? He got stuck in the mud somewhere out in the country. And so he went to a nearby house to ask for help. Well, they, the neighbor said, well, why don't we unload the wagon? So Tatum Maybe is sitting not. there thinking, uh, no, we don't want to do this, but I don't want to lie. The neighbor said, well, what do you have in the wagon? <laughs> to cover himself so he could, in good conscience, say he didn't lie, he said, well, I have meat and wool. <laughs> <laughs> and the neighbor said, fine. So that was the end of that. One other occasion, specific story that we know of about Laurie Tatum. Again, he was taking uh, a load of fugitive slaves. Uh, with him, and he had a load of wheat that he was taking to a gristmill. So puts the wheat on top of them to conceal them in the wagon. Well, one of the wheels broke. Uh, it was during wintertime, and it went through the ice. So several men came by to assist him. Now, according to Tatum's own story, he said that, quote, one of the supposed sacks of wheat coughed. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. The men who were assisting all looked very wondrously at the, at the Teamsters and at each other. But no one made any remark about the unusual occurrence. The men unloaded the train in the Friends Settlement in Lynn County. Mm. That tells me several things. Primarily, this story tells me that there were a lot of people in the community. They may not have been active with the Underground Railroad. They but may they, not have even been abolitionists. But, but they, they had knew, to know what was yeah, going they, on. They knew what was going on. And they knew that it was going on generally in the area anyway. Mm -hmm. And yet, okay, we'll accept that explanation. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> we'll deal with it. So yeah. move on and have a good life. Now, what's also just an interesting sidelight about Laurie Tatum is that nine years after the Civil War, Jesse and Hulda Hoover, who lived in West Branch, had a baby boy who they named Herbert. Herbert Hoover. Oh, Who okay. grew up to become the president, president. of the United States. Mm -hmm. Hoover unfortunately lost both of his parents before he was 11 yeah. years old. Mm -hmm. And so a relative took physical custody of Herbert and his two siblings, a, a brother and a sister, and they went out and lived in, I think, variously in Oregon and California. But they needed a financial guardian. They chose Lori Tatum. Oh. Tatum lived into old age. Yeah, he lived till 1900. By that time, uh, Herbert Hoover had finished his studies. You know, he studied to be a mining engineer at Stanford University out in California. But until uh, Hoover graduated from Stanford... Lori Tatum uh, was his financial guardian. Here's a man who's active with the Underground Railroad before and during the Civil War uh, who ends up being a financial guardian for a young underage person who eventually became president, president. of the United States. Yeah. So just an interesting wow, sidelight yeah, story in, about that's, that. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Another gentleman I'm going to talk about, actually I should talk about both him and his wife, a man named Elias Gilbert and his wife, uh, Carolyn uh, Pitts Gilbert. They settled in what is now Battendorf, Iowa. There's a little village called Lilienthal at the time. The name of the town was actually changed later to uh, Gilbert, and then to Gilbertville. And it wasn't, I think, around the turn of the century, it was renamed Bettendorf, but it was founded by the Gilberts. Gilbert was an, uh, an abolitionist starting as a very, very young man. And this was when he was growing up in Ontario County, uh, New York. He got into very vigorous anti-slavery work when he was there. But he was described as a very aggressive and outspoken abolitionist. So mm. it kind of fits in with people like Party Butler yeah. and Wells Spicer and 
Isaac mm-hmm. Cody. Okay. They had a niece. Yes, they Ellen had a niece. Uh, it was Carolyn's niece. Okay. And her name was Helen Pitts. Helen Pitts, as a young lady, gets a job working with the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Some years later, Douglass's wife dies, and he marries Helen Pitts. Mm-hmm. So Elias Gilbert and Carolyn Pitts Gilbert uh, had a family relation with Frederick Douglass that Dougie. way. Yeah. Now, where they lived, they see they were right up next to the Mississippi River. And we know that they were underground railroad agents. We know that they were station agents. We know that they hid fugitive slaves. And it's very likely that they actually built a form of a tunnel or a, a place going from their house, which is almost a mansion, mm-hmm. going out to the river. So they could, they could bring fugitive slaves into the house under cover of night. But they could sneak them out and get them across the Mississippi River in the middle of the night also. Yeah. Next person I'd like to talk about, maybe not colorful, he came from a large family. He had an older brother named Leroy. They lived in Clinton County. Jerome was a very young man. Uh, he lived with an older brother, Leroy, on their farm, which was kind of close to DeWitt, which is a city kind of in the middle of Clinton County. It's kind of like common knowledge. Everybody in that area knew that Leroy Dutton was a station agent. People in the community were generally aware that fugitive slaves were being kept on Leroy Dutton's Farm. I actually visited that farm and oh. talked to, uh, at least as of four or five years ago, the current owner, a very pleasant gentleman named Alan Green. Uh, hello, Alan, if you're still out there mm-hmm. and listening. <laughs> the interesting thing about the extended Dutton family was they were all free thinkers and they were outspoken. They, I mean, when the different members of the Dutton family died, the brothers, Jerome and his brothers, died in the 1890s, they were mentioned in national publications of free thought. Mm-hmm. magazines in the United States. So they had quite a strong reputation. Jerome Dutton kept a lot of diaries through the 1850s. But there was a stretch of time from about 1859 to 1864 that he didn't keep a diary. And I don't know why, but there's a reason why I'm bringing this up. Jerome Dutton lived till about 1893 and never admitted ever that he was an underground railroad agent. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like a puzzle I've had to put together through my research that pretty much proves that he was. First of all, as I mentioned, he lived with his older brother Leroy when he was very young. And so he had to be engaged also in working with fugitive slaves on brother Leroy's farm. But here's what else we know. He was very closely connected to the Republican Party in Clinton County. He had a brother-in-law named Benjamin Duke. He was one of the state's leading Republicans in the 1850s. He served several terms in the uh, state legislature in the 1860s. The year after the Civil War, his brother-in-law, Benjamin Gue, was elected lieutenant governor. Gue serves one term as lieutenant governor of Iowa. After his retirement, he lives to the early 1900s, but he publishes some very interesting histories of Iowa. Gue was a major player uh, in the Republican Party. We see numerous diary entries uh, that Jerome Dutton kept mentioning that he was going to this political event or going to the polls and so on, and that he went with Gue in their wagon to wherever they were heading to for whatever meeting or whatever election they were dealing in. But there are no diaries from the years 1859 to 1864. Here's what we do know, that he bought a ferry service on the Wapsipenican River mm. uh, late in 1858, early 1859. The Wapsipenican River, sometimes people just refer to it as a Wapsie, people who live in eastern Iowa, was essentially the county line between Clinton County to the north and Scott County to the south. The significance of buying a ferry service at that time, I'm talking about the late 1850s and early 1860s, there were no bridges across the Wapsie. Mm. So if you wanted to move across the river 
anywhere, you know, from Scott County up into Clinton County or Clinton County down into Scott County, uh, you couldn't get across on a bridge because there were no bridges. There were only ferry services. And it was very well understood by people on both sides of the river that a lot of those ferries were being operated by Underground Railroad okay. operators. Yeah, uh, uh, Underground Railroad agents. We don't have the names of hardly any of them. And we don't have the name of Jerome Dutton as, mm. a, as a known Underground Railroad agent. But during those same years that we don't have a diary for them, and I say diaries, I'm talking about diaries that are now with the State Historical Society in Des Moines yeah. that I've looked at. At that time, he also owned a farm on the south side of the river in Scott County. And on the ferry, if you cross the river to the north side and you're on the bank of Clinton County, there was a store there. And people in the community knew that fugitive slaves were being across on that ferry. They never mentioned the name Jerome Dutton. But it was on his ferry Mm. between the farm on the south side of the river and the store on the north side of the river. And these people would be hustled down into, they actually had a basement or a cellar Mm. below the store. And they were kept there and then moved on by somebody else the next the next day or so. And so here's an example of an Underground Railroad station agent never admitted that he was involved in the Underground Railroad, but you put the pieces together. You know it was. Yeah. Underground Railroad agents were very different. Some openly proclaimed that they had been a member of the mm-hmm. Underground Railroad. Other people who were known to be railroad agents never talked about it. And oftentimes it would be stories that were in the community, stories that went through the family, People knew who was doing what, but the agents themselves never talked about it. Mm. So you find a lot of diversity. Now you got a... Campbell, Cornelius B. Campbell. Now here's another colorful guy. Oh, you talk about a character. He, He grew up in New England. He was a congregational minister. He kept talking about the evils of slavery. Now some of the churches he was in, in fact, most of the churches, he would have some people who would support that. But he had a lot of other people who didn't. What happened with Campbell was that he would bounce from church to church to church to church. <laughs> Just preaching, preaching the same message. And because the congregations were divided in their support, he just didn't last very long in these mm. churches. Finally, he decided, you know, I'm going to leave the ministry. He represented himself as a congregational minister the rest of his life, but he dedicated himself completely to the abolitionist movement. He became a member of the American Anti-Slavery Society. Mm. He corresponded, I don't know if I want to say regularly, but he corresponded some with William Lloyd Garrison, Mm. the editor of The Liberator out in in Boston. He had personal contacts with Susan B. Anthony, with Lucretia Mott, another uh, female white leader of the American Anti-Slavery Society. Campbell comes to, uh, and his wife, Phoebe, they they come to uh, Clinton, Iowa, about 1856, and they settled in, and he, he used his house as a station for uh, fugitive slaves. Uh, but he became known for this vibrant uh, personality that mm. he had, uh, a preacher without a church, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, he was, he was very active in that way. There was another man who lived in a, a town called Comanche, which is just a short distance outside of Clinton. Uh, in fact, if you drove through uh, Clinton, Iowa today, and you drove to Comanche, they're basically one metropolitan area. There's no countryside between them. But at any mm. rate, living in that town was a man named George Weston. And George Weston may have been a relative of Campbell's. I haven't quite been able to figure that out, but they were very close. And what I'm going to talk about now is how sometimes underground railroad agents would communicate with each other by using codes. 
And so what Weston did was he was going to send some fugitive slaves to uh, Campbell's house in Clinton. And so he writes a note. It was May of 1859, and uh, CB, as he was known, for Cornelius Bowman Campbell, mm-hmm. he was commonly known as CB, he receives a, a letter from Weston, and here's what the letter says. It says, Lowmore, that's the name of a town to the west of Clinton, Lowmore, May 6, 1859. Mr. C.B.C., dear sir, by tomorrow evening's mail, you will receive two volumes of the irrepressible conflict bound in black. After perusal, please forward and oblige. Yours truly, G.W.W. Now let's take this apart. <laughs> Mr. C.B.C., well, that's, that's Cornelius Bowman Campbell. Okay, tomorrow evening's mail, you receive two volumes of The Irrepressible Conflict. Now, The Irrepressible Conflict comes from a speech that Senator William Henry Seward had delivered oh, a year or two before this incident in, in Iowa in 1859. Seward was the leading contender for the Republican presidential nomination in May, 6, uh, in May of 1860, right up to the point where the Lincoln managers, man, they didn't get a stampede, but they got a movement of enough delegates to deny Seward the presidential nomination. William Henry Seward was Mr. Republican up until the 1860 convention when the convention suddenly chose Lincoln Lincoln, to be the nominee. But he had made this speech that he titled The Irrepressible Conflict, predicting basically that the problem with slavery is not going to end until there's some type of a horrible solution. That's basically what Seward said. So that's what he's talking about. But bound in black, gee, what do you suppose that means? Mm -hmm. Okay, And it says two volumes. So what was Weston doing? He was sending two fugitive slaves, okay? Mm-hmm. And the evening mail, he's sending them through a conductor to get to CBC, who is Cornelius Oh, the evening, the evening mail. The evening mail, mm. right. Yeah, because oftentimes they traveled at night. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So this is, this is one example yeah. of the way that people talked in code. Okay, we're talking about unusual people here. Dr. <laughs> Juliet Hallworth Stillman. Oh, my goodness. There was nothing conventional about her. <laughs> she was raised as a Baptist. She changed from, from one denomination to the next, eventually became a free thinker. Here's a female who is a physician. Okay, now, water cure therapies, often referred to as hydropathy, was kind of a faddish form of medicine. That's what she practiced when she was when she was living in Clinton, Iowa in the 1850s. The name Stillman was her married name. She was not a station agent and she was not a conductor. She was what we would classify as a general agent. You had a lot of people who worked with the Underground Railroad that were not station agents. They were not conductors, but they helped the Underground Railroad in one way or another. Here's what Dr. Stillman did. She would organize Underground Railroad activities. She would smooth the communication and and arrange for transportation as slaves are moving from one station to the next. Mm. So she wasn't keeping them in her home. She wasn't moving them physically from one station to the next, but she was coordinating activities through the whole county. I, I wanted to include her on the list because such an unusual person, a very early female physician, in the state of Iowa, she, was a, she became a freak thing. But, again, unusual characters mm-hmm. that you find in the Underground Railroad and the general abolitionist movement. One other person I'm going to speak about, just one other name on my list that I want to talk about is Hiram Price. Uh, Hiram Price was a, he was a general agent. Again, not a, not a station agent with the Underground Railroad, and not a conductor, but a general agent. 
he was a well-known person in Davenport and well-known person in Scott County. He held various elective offices. During the Civil War, he was uh, representing uh, the Eastern Iowa District that included Davenport in the U.S. House of Representatives. He had a couple instances where he simply provided financial support. He wasn't directly involved in the nitty-gritty of the Underground Railroad, but people connected with the Underground Railroad who needed financial help. You know, you needed to pay somebody to take a wagon with a team or something. Mm-hmm. It could be it could be any expense that, that might be necessary. He helped them out financially. When the Civil War broke out, there was no money in the Iowa Treasury to even pay the troops. And so Hiram Price on his own put up his own money to have the troops paid. Wow. His own money. Mm. Yeah. He was also active on the floor of the House of Representatives. He was one of the floor leaders uh, helping to, to get the House to get that necessary two-thirds majority, majority yeah. uh, to pass the 13th Amendment. So uh, Hiram Price, uh, resident right. of Davenport, Iowa, a general agent with the uh, uh, Underground Railroad in that area, was very helpful, mm. very beneficial in helping to get the 13th Amendment to our U.S. Constitution ratified. Interesting. Wow. From a historical perspective, we hear a lot about red state and blue state today. How similar or different between that discussion today versus slave state and free state back then? Well, of course, both of our major political parties are coalitions, and those coalitions change. Mm -hmm. For example, after the Civil War, uh, the Republicans dominated politics in the Union states in the the northern part of the country. The Democratic Party dominated uh, politics in the southern states, and that's why they call it the Solid South, Solid Democratic South. You begin to see changes in that alignment as early as 1928 when Herbert Hoover carried five southern states. Probably the only reason he was able to do that was the Democratic candidate was Al Smith, who was a New York Catholic. And, of course, feeling in the South against Catholics was not very positive at that point in time. And that's probably why he lost those states. But then with the rise of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, you see increasing disillusionment among Southerners with the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party is becoming more of a civil rights party. And, of course, it was a very gradual transition. Even when I was a boy in the 1960s, I remember significant numbers of uh, Republican senators and representatives supporting civil rights measures, voting for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But what's happened in the last 50 years is that there's been a very strong alignment we're all familiar with. We read about it in the news every day about the problems between the two political parties. Uh, Members of Congress don't even hardly talk to each other. Conflict Mm -hmm. between the the president of one party and the political leaders in Congress of the other party. We're all familiar with that type of thing. But to get to your question, right now there is not really an alignment directly between the South versus the rest of the country because there are other parts of the country who in some significant ways have been able to form political alliances with uh, people in the southern states. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, our our, our political system today is operating in so many different ways from the Civil War period. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the party alignments are different from region to region, even from state to state. Yeah. Okay. Would you think slavery would, would not last as long as it did if slaves knew how to read and write? Well, let's start off by saying this. Slave owners hated the, even the thought of teaching slaves to read. That should tell you a lot right there. Mm-hmm. They understood the value of education. They understood the value of literacy. They understood that an educated citizenry is an enlightened citizenry. 
and an egalitarian citizen. Mm. Does that work in well with maintaining the institution of slavery? Absolutely not. Of course. Yeah. Uh, slave owners intuitively understood the danger of educating mm-hmm. people uh, who are not being treated well in American society. Yeah. What else are you working on? Uh, I am working with, there's a very active county historical society in Madison County, and I'm working particularly with one uh, very talented uh, lady named Linda Smith. She worked, she's been working on the project with Doug Jones when he was still the director. Okay. And I got to know Linda when Doug was still with us, and I've been working with her since then. They're doing some very interesting things having to do with historic preservation, but also uh, with the Underground Road. They're planning on publishing a new Madison County history. Mm. Uh, I don't know what extent it's going to be, uh, but uh, I've been working. I've been working with them a lot on writing, particularly biographical essays of people who were known uh, to be uh, Underground Road agents. They've done most of the research and they filled out the forms that we use, mm. but they just needed biographical essays constructed and written. So that's what I've been working on. Okay. Good deal. Thanks yeah. for your time, Dave. Very happy to come up here and talk to you, Eric. I appreciate. Uh, you driving all the way up to Madison City. Get out of the house, get out of town yeah. for a day, sure. Yeah, yeah I appreciate so, it. Not a problem. Anything else you want to add on abolitionists? Oh, I don't want to stay all night. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you for having me, yep. Eric. That was Dave Holmgren with the Iowa Historical Society in Des Moines. Thank you for listening to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Until next time. Be safe.